Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Welcome to Sydney Writers Festival. And uh, of course, we acknowledge and are grateful for the fact that we are here on Gadigal land, enjoying the hospitality and care for country that Gadigal people have shown for so long. And uh, able to flourish in their homelands as a result. Uh, today, I will be talking to the um, winner of this year's Stella Prize, Evelyn Araluen. Does <laughs> it still feel a bit shocking to hear that? I just, I'm just waiting for them to say that there was a mistake. <laughs> like on that La La Land, we might be like, oh, sorry. It hasn't happened yet, so. I don't, think, I don't think you need to worry about that. Um, probably most of you know this already, but um, I'm Melissa Lukashenko, and Evelyn is a poet, a researcher, and a co-editor of Overland Literary Journal based in Nam, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Evelyn's widely published criticism, fiction and poetry have been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, a Wheeler Centre Next Door, uh, Next Door, Next Chapter Fellowship. That's a, that's a nice idea, Next Door. Yeah. <laughs> uh, along with many other uh, smaller awards and grants. Born and raised on Durham country, Evelyn is a descendant, like myself, of the Bundjalung Nation. Please welcome Evelyn. <laughs> so, Evelyn, so that people can get to know you a little bit before we talk about Drop Bear more specifically, um, tell us about where you grew up and uh, your childhood. What sort of a family did you grow up within that went on to produce this amazing poet you now are? Uh, well, I um, was very lucky to grow up um, about two hours west of here um, and also want to be paying my respect, honour and reverence to... Oh, hey, it was nice to see you, mate. <laughs> respect, honour and reverence to Gadigal country, to their custodianship and also to the Redfern Waterloo black community. Um, you know, they've... Uh, I've been a really important political force here um, and I want to, you know, as we're in a space like Carriage Works, I do want to think about that ongoing sovereignty of this community. Um, but yes, yeah, so I grew up um, in Burrabarongal, Garag country, which is a really interesting area. It's a really interesting part of the colony. It's where um, you had some of the earliest agricultural and um, settlement expansions as um, the colony was sort of pushing out of um, pushing out further into the Cumberland Plain. Is that where MacArthur went out? Yeah. 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 So it has a really long history of, um, of disease, of smallpox being taken up the river, um, as well as um, frontier conflict. Uh, a lot of that history hasn't even be f been fully and, and accurately recorded and um, uh, and isn't fully known about, but the Hawkesbury uh, was, you know, it's a valley. Um, it's a valley where uh, the Hawkesbury River, Darabin, turns into the Nepean. Um, and um, just sort of going a bit further west, you get to Gundungara country and to the Blue Mountains where um, 
you know, uh, when Cox um, went, went over to then go and, um, and colonise Wiradjuri country. So it's a site of very, um, you know, a very violent colonial history and it's deeply entrenched in myths of um, white Australian nationalism. Growing up, I, I grew up in like a semi-rural area and it's now turned into like quite explicit um, suburban sprawl. So there's a lot of... Which is another kind of violence in itself. It absolutely <laughs> is. Um, you know, this sort of industrial push uh, that has, um, understandably, like it's got a really um, uh, really damaging impact on the local ecosystems. You know, I grew up surrounded by emu plains and, you know, yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was just a thing that you could go do. You could go um, drive five minutes up the road to go watch the emus and now that's like a Costco... Mm. Um, so it's been, it, you know, Western Sydney more broadly has been the site of a lot of change in recent years. But I'm, so I have a, I, I can go home and go see family, but that's not the same home that I, I grew up in as a result of, yeah. of that expansion um, and that, um, that kind of constant industrial push. Mm. So, you know, my dad being um, really interested in history and um, uh, always wanting to, to um, work to, you know, part of his work is about recording that history of frontier conflict and trying to make it known that there were massacres and raids mm. and um it's your dad who's bunjalung yes yeah, so dad so my um great-grandfather came down from Bayugal around the start of um the 20th century first sort of decade of that uh, i had other family that was up in uh around gaduga dinawan reserve um and um you know so the bunjalung family have actually been out there for a really long time, which places me in this interesting kind of relationship with country and ancestry. Um, and a lot of the community that we've grown up with um, have also come from different parts of New South Wales. So you've got a lot of Wiradjuri mob out there, Yorta Yorta mob, Gamilaroi mm. mob as well. And it's just this sort of space. Uh, and there's a lot of Bundjalung mob out there, actually. Bundjalung run the land council out there, which is... Mm. Interesting. Um, so it's a site of um, many different Aboriginal families and communities that have been displaced throughout New South Wales, but has this long entrenched history of some of the um, most historical dispossessions and displacements. Yeah. So you're in that, it's, it's not a unique position because uh, our First Nations people have always been moving around, always marrying yeah. into other mobs for millennia of course yeah. and since colonization lots of displacement but you are mm. in the that position of being both indigenous and immigrant at the same time yeah. in a sense yeah yeah and it has created a it's created an interesting um you know the 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 care and the passion that i do feel for Darug country for burabrongal country and um the the sort of the grief that i see over the damage that is being done the damage that's being done to that place and whatever responsibility I can participate in, you know, going to bush care and being um, involved in different working groups and um, uh, on a couple of different, you know, reference committees about how to try to care for the, the land that 
that is under Aboriginal um, custodianship there, you know, and Dad's always putting in new submissions to get these spaces expanded so that we can try and protect more sites. So I've been involved in, um, I've been involved in different forms of, like, the literary activism of helping my dad edit all of these historical, you know, um, historical writings he's, he's tried to put together over the course of my life about frontier conflict, as well as going and picking up rubbish and trying to help, you know, trying to help um, heal that land as much as we possibly can and as much as we have access to, as well as being just one of the many, you know, the many Koori or Guri or Murray kids that are out in this in this um, part of Western Sydney, and it's you know I grew up being Kerry and Barry's kid, yeah. and so my identity was always just really deeply entwined in them. And they're both educators. Dad works for the Department of Education for a did, long time. Did you grow up so. with books? Yeah, um, and something I write about in in Drop Bear is that like Mum and Dad were so committed to giving us books because yeah. they didn't have any when they were yeah. growing up. So yeah. 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 It's a really active, you know, and I know you, you you would have done that with your kids too, but it is just this, like, I imagine sometimes, like, how did they even start, you know? How did they actually start that process of, like, going and trying to build up their own kind of canon, I guess, of um, of, of stories that they would feel were safe and appropriate and encouraging for us? So as much mm. as possible, they ended up, going with Australian literature because they wanted the bush. They didn't want an American, you know. Cowboys and Indians. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I grew up with a lot of Australian literature, funnily enough. Yeah, I think um, in my case, I probably grew up with a more Anglophile Mm -hmm. kind of um, experience, being that bit older and, and growing up in an Australia where... Yeah, the, the resurgence of uh, Australian literature wasn't so strong. But, yeah, my mum was a, a huge fan of people like Ruth Park and so um, an Australian woman who'd lived in the slums in Surrey Hills where my mum had also lived uh, very, very poor, um, actually losing two babies um, or two pregnancies rather through poverty and having to be working three jobs. So I know the, the work of Ruth Park really spoke to my mum and we were always being taken to the library constantly mm. as kids so, and, you know, mum was too poor for food as a kid, let alone for books and so that determination that you will get educated, you will climb out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Mm. So Drop Bear, you describe Drop Bear, which has grown out of your um, indigenousness and your growing up on Darug country out in the west there and growing out of being a really active community participant. Uh, you described it in an interview recently as a strange little book. <laughs> tell, us, tell us how Drop Bear started life. Was it always going to be a weird collection of poems and prose pieces? Well, funnily enough, and we were just sort of yarning about this out there before, but the initial kind of moment of drop bear um because I'd been I'd, I'd started writing poetry um little bits here and there actually I was studying down at Eora College and I was doing Bundjalung language with Drew Roberts down there yep. and I did one of you know I wrote my first poem learning Bundjalung on Tharawal as as a um basically just as a as a TAFE assignment um uh which he accepted and I passed the unit which is great um <laughs> So I, I mean, yeah, I think you passed the unit. Yeah. 
yes. Third one, Bajalang language. Um, yeah, and and that experience created a real linguistic and grammatical shift in me and an interest in experimenting with language in a way that hadn't been a part of my writing practice prior to. So I was trying to write fiction. So when um, did you start writing? Like at what age? Um, so I was one of those weird little kids who would just like, you give me two sheets of printer paper and I'd go and like, I'd make my little chapbook about like a bunny rabbit or something like that. Like I, I was doing all of that. And then, um, uh, you know, I worked out actually when I was, I think it was about eight years old and um, I needed to go to a new school. I'd been bullied in the one that I was in and we'd run out of schools in the district um, you know, Hawkesbury is a racist place and being the, you know, the black family in these schools created a lot of problems for us. Mm. So I wanted, I, like, I wanted to get into the gifted and talented school up the road, yep. but I was failing all of my maths and I was failing all of that. But what got me in was that they had a creative writing section mm. and I wrote, a, I wrote a short story and they said, listen, you can't count, <laughs> but this is good enough that we're going to give you that shot and we're going to give you that space to actually do that. So, so wow. storytelling legitimately. So you've been writing yourself into safety for yeah, ever since 100%. the age of eight. Yeah, and, you know, like, and I'm sure that's somewhere around that story um, uh, is around somewhere, but, um, you know, like I was writing as a teenager on all sorts of corners of the internet and I hope nobody finds it. Um, <laughs> please don't. Um, and then I had these aspirations of writing a novel and poetry was completely unexpected for me. But the thing about when you start writing poetry and you, you know, I entered it, I entered my first poem into the Nakata Brophy, it got shortlisted and Ellen Van Neven, who, who won the prize that year, sent me a message and said, it's so, it's so great, it's so deadly to see another black poet out there, you should keep writing. And that encouragement just was a massive shift for me because I'd read Ellen's work and was just thought Ellen was so good and deadly. And so, like, it, you know, from that point, I became quite interested in poetry. And when you're, you're writing poetry, you kind of get involved in, like, a, there's always a poetry space and community. And in Sydney, there were a lot of, you know, experimental, avant-garde, conceptual poets. And the thing that always baffled me is that they had absolutely no sense of the land that they were on and often thought that they were challenging, politically challenging or questioning or undermining yeah. these, these colonial paradigms and really they were absolutely just reifying them. Like you're, I, you're talking about non-Aboriginal poets. Like the whole eco-poetics movement about, you know, like poetry of the environment and... I would read these poems about, like, a council of dingo elders, and it was just always, like, this appropriation of, um, you know, our, our deeply spiritual and cultural relationships to the land and to, you know, ancestors and to animal, non-human relations. And, you know, these, they, they were taking up subjectivities of, of things that I felt they had no business doing. What does that phrase mean, taking up subjectivities for people that aren't familiar with it? They were writing predominantly, I feel, like the thing that really sparked frustration for me was reading poems that were taking up the perspective and presenting the point of view of 
animals and particularly of animals, like the thing that sparked it was people writing poems about animals that either were in my family's totemic structure or that were, you know, totemically linked to friends of mine. And I just sort of thought you've not in any capacity thought about what it is to be in a place where that kangaroo that moves past you is also as much of a part and has as much, you know, autonomy and agency and spirit as the human standing there. And it just felt like this assumption that we as humans have a right to speak for animals, have a right to speak for the land when we don't. And I don't see mob riding taking up those perspectives and taking up the or, or assuming that they can know what the kangaroo thinks or that it's a productive conversation to have you know mm. and there's a phrase I come back to a lot that I really like by the Australian nature writer George Seddon and he says that the English language is a filter over Australia it presents a filter over the country we cannot we cannot speak of it properly in this language that we've that we've just sort of dumped here Mm. Um, and I find that I find that that extends not simply to the language because you can experiment with the language you can challenge that what's who's what's his name George George Seddon and he's a white fella S-E-D-O-N S-E-D-O-N yeah he's a white fella he passed a few years ago but he had um I think he had some actually quite respectful ideas and ways of thinking about what he could do what was in his capacity as a person writing about nature. Mm. And yet what I was finding was were a lot of poets who felt that they could somehow evade the responsibility, the accountability, the protocol, the challenge of thinking about language's role in place and just essentialise it down to this silly, ironic... You know, oh, I get to I get to write my conceptual poem about about the wallaby and not think about that as being someone's family. Yeah. You know. So, drop bear was that? Did you think of drop bear as a a very conscious response to that? Yeah. Um, I wrote certain poems, so I wrote Drop Bear Poetics, um, Mrs. Kookaburra Addresses the Natives, um, Fern Your Own Gully, um, like a lot of those poems really explicitly thinking about what I was seeing as this sort of ironic play in that, um, in, in those histories that didn't want to take responsibility for how racist a lot of them had been. Well, you mentioned Mrs. Kookaburra dresses yeah. the natives. Let's, let's, have, give it a go. let's have a taste. Let's give that one a go. Um, and for context, this one is um, uh, this is all rearranged, like found text. This is I'm not making up any of this stuff. Like these are all references and ideas and terms and names that were in um, the work of May Gibbs. Mrs. Kookaburra addresses the natives. Humans, please be kind to all bush creatures and don't pull flowers up by the roots. And please be gentle to little ragged blossom of blessed tender heart, loved, beloved by bush and its folk, a wee speck of blushing babe, of lovely, important sadness. We mustn't forget little Abelia, held in guard by a thousands of rainbow fish and a charming seaweed estate. 
She is a shiny white pearl burst open near the pleasant size of little ragged blossom who goes off to visit her in the sea. Humans, you must remember how on the killing of the wicked Mrs. Snake, the bush became joyful and rich Mr. Pilly, the father of Lily Pilly, the actress, gave a dinner party at the Gum Inn. Such festive spirits we were in and against as Snugglepot and Cuddlepie held corroboree for the native bears at White City, which the evil, wicked Banksia men call Korijigap, a foul old word we don't say here. Humans, now tell me, did you really think all the bad Banksia men were deady bones when they went to the bottom of the sea in the great fight with Mr. Lizard and Mr. Eagle and Cuddlepie? Not deady bones, not a bit. For it was just last cheap Tuesday at Lily Pilly's picture palace that the nasty, dark and dry cones burst terrible into the room, snatching up Nidusing and Nani Wass and Jindy Warraback, perhaps in revenge of Mrs. Snake or her aunt and mother-in-law and three cousins, and surely would have gobbled them whole were it not for Mr. Lizard and brave and strong Nutty Bub. How blessed we are in this delightful bush which lends its dappled light to our important tales, so that we might share with our little nuts how frightened we were of those straggly, godless fiends. What fun it was to see their eyes plucked out by those fearsome red-tailed cooks that they called the foul old word we don't say here. We got through it. We got through it. We did it. I love that poem. I particularly love that stanza. Do you really think all the bad Banksia men were deady bones when they went to the bottom of the sea in the great fight with Mr. Lizard and Mr. Eagle and Cuddlepine? Not deady bones, not a bit. So you read but, it way better than me. <laughs> but this, this tone, this kind of light, well, it's really heavy irony, but done in such a light way. They're actually really dark books. And yeah. that's something that I didn't discover or that I didn't really process until, like, I actually went through, you know, like, for me, it started with thinking about the poetry. But then I thought, when does this begin? When does mm. do these tropes yeah. and this does this kind of inherent violence and aggressiveness of Australian yeah. literature where does it start and it's in there's some real messed up stuff in those books I tell you what yeah. like white city that's not a joke like there's literally a white nationalist city in snuggle pot and cuddle pie is there yeah. wow I'm, I'm not really familiar with snuggle pot and cuddle pot the other thing I really love is um things like humans please be kind to all bush creatures but what Evelyn didn't read out then was bush creatures has a little trademark <laughs> sign above it and the you know the bush trademark mm. yeah <laughs> they bought copyright on it didn't they <laughs> so let's talk about craft let's talk about how you actually write um and and the practice of writing are you a a, a morning writer or an evening writer someone that can write at any time of the day no I love people who have discipline about the way that they write but I absolutely have none of it and really like this book was written in different fragments and, like, I was writing poems at the back of poetry readings in pubs and, mm. like, you know, walking the dog and putting notes together on my phone. Mm. Um, and sometimes I would... So, so there's some poems where, like, I would really force myself to sit down with, you know, some texts and sit down and really just get very enmeshed in the language. So, like, The Last Endeavour and The Last Bush Ballad are examples of, like, a, a deeply archival and research-based practice, which you sort of need to 
be deeply methodical about. But um, particularly for Drop Bear, I just couldn't muster up focus until sort of the last legs of it to actually bring it together as a collection. But the majority of those poems were absolute, like, floating islands for me until I really started to get towards that stage with, with Ellen Van Nieven, who was, who was the editor of the collection, to actually try and think about how they speak to each other coherently or um, as a collection. So half of the work, at the very least, was just in the editing and arranging for me. Right. And um, so you set out knowing that you wanted to speak back to this kind of colonial and neo-colonial imagining of the Australian bush and, and the, those iconic characters, but the poems themselves were um, written in a, a kind of very fragmented way. Yeah, and I mean, all this time I was working in the arts, I was writing a PhD where I was predominantly looking at the work of contemporary Aboriginal women writers and that process really did force me to have to do a lot of research about Australia, more further research in Australian literature to understand the works that they might be pushing against, you know? Like, I did a lot of reading of post-Marbo literature to mm. understand Mullumbimby and Too Much Lip, be too much lip Better yeah. because I knew it was in that space and context. Mm. And so a lot of these poems are kind of documents of that research period because the, you know, the institutional requirement of producing analysis and interpretation and a literature review and methodology, it doesn't leave space for a, what I felt was a really legitimate expression of rage, of bewilderment, of, um, and also of that kind of, that, that humour that you get when you're exhausted yeah. and you're overwhelmed and you don't, you don't have a space to have a coherent argument. Like, you know, there are poems in there that absolutely are like silly takes on some relatively low-hanging fruit because the requirements of a PhD did not allow me to, to situate, you know, to situate that work in it um, as a legitimate response and interpretation, which I, I was frustrated by, um, and, but just built up this kind of weird little paratextual account of what it is to be somebody who was ostensibly kind of actually raised with proximity to Australian literature, but then as an adult had the experience of going like, what the hell was that? <laughs> oh, my God. Are we okay? <laughs> so uh, written in fragments, in odds and sods, but with a clear end point, uh, in mind. Uh, so how, do, how does it feel to have um, done this kind of long-term and somewhat disjointed project and then to have won one of Australia's major literary awards <laughs> at the other end? <laughs> Insane. Um, and, like, and it's an incredible honour because, um, you know, the Stella Prize is... is I, I like I've deeply admired it throughout the entirety of my writing career I know that like it's only been around for 10 years but keeping in mind that I've only been writing for like eight or seven or something like that now so it's been a it has actually legitimately been an aspiration of mine to win it I just thought I'd have to write a novel mm -hmm. um 
But it's, it's odd because now the book feels more legitimate and coherent than the context that necessarily gave rise to it. And, like, you know, getting to, getting to talk with people about it um, as, like, this, this coherent and ostensibly complete project where it doesn't necessarily... The work of Drop Bear felt more communal and ongoing than what a single you know, relatively short book of poetry can really encompass. But it has created a shift in the way that I think about my own writing as, like, and I've been noticing it the last sort of months or two, I'm really now actually starting to think about the implication of having some money that means I can go down to from three jobs to two jobs and that I can, like probably have a day off a week to write and that's not something I've had in my life and so that legitimately makes more work possible in a way I hadn't, I, you know, hadn't thought about. Well, I definitely encourage you to have at least one day <laughs> off a week and if you can carve out a month or two with the money, so much the better. I, I'm not someone that can work episodically. I, yeah. I only work on one project at mm -hmm. a time. And uh, yeah, you know, if I was if I was still Uber driving or do something like that, I could do that and then go home and write. But the kind of work that you do as an editor and the, the arts industry work, trying to do that and do creative work, would just that would do my head in. Has the PhD changed that for you in doing a research-based approach to your next book? Mm, changed it. Doing a PhD through UTS has meant that I've read a lot more colonial literature mm -hmm. and, and literature set in colonial times than I would have otherwise, and that's meant an improvement to the novel that I'll be putting out next year, definitely. Uh, a, a richer kind of uh, ground for that novel to mm -hmm. grow within. Um, but otherwise it's just been a, a way, like so many writers, to, to fund yeah. a novel a over three years. Yeah, it's yeah. A, a living wage. All right, I'm going to indulge myself and read Drop Bear Poetics now. Tiddalix say, I'm such great thirst, I will drain the land and drag my big fat belly across the empty sea. Bunyip say, I'm going to gobble you up if you step waters where I sleep and with wet claws I will snatch your spine and ankles to fill them with stain and stench. What the Mopoks say don't need saying if you've grown up under his eyes. Now here's the part you write black snake down for a dilly of national flair. True God, you don't know how wild I'm gonna be to every fucking post-mod blinky bill trying to crack open my country, mining in metaphors for that place you felt felt you somewhere in the Royal National. Wagon says, use heart, but I am rage and dreaming at the gloss green palm fronds of this gentry aesthetic. All this pot planting in our sovereignty, a garden for you to swallow speak our blood. If you're talking that talk, you gotta scrape it from my schoolhouse walls Filter gollywog ashtray snuggle pot kitsch into your pastoral deconstruct. Fill four and twenty pies with 
artisan magpies. If you sever their heads, you can wear them to the doof. I say rage and dreaming for making liar the liarbird, for making mimetic the power by Emmy gave when ribbon's mischief swallowed first life. Ochre dust, creation breath, ancestor song. We aren't here to hear you poem. You do wrong, you get wrong, you get gobbled up. <laughs> ah! Oh my God, that's a dream come true hearing you read that. So we started talking about a living wage. Um, talk to me about, mm. uh, you spoke at the, the uh, award ceremony for the Stella about being one paycheck away from poverty. T tell, me, tell me how that affects the work that you can produce and, and how you imagine your life as a, as a poet and as a writer more generally. I think it's a pretty standard predicament. Like I don't I don't really know very many people who were able to build a literary career or practice even who didn't either go through prolonged periods of incredible financial instability, poverty, or they were privately wealthy. And the upsetting thing is often, like, we have this... We, we love a good narrative of the Aussie battler, but there are a lot of authors out there who present themselves as a part of that, of that kind of archetype and, and their work is, is, is privately funded because they come from deeply middle-class or upper-class contexts. And, like, no shame on you for having financial stability. Like, we'd all love to if we could. But um, uh, it's... It's something that um, I think is really dangerous if we over-romanticise or over-glamorise it. Like, I, I really don't think that financial stability pr produces anything but more poverty. It is very expensive to be poor anywhere. But, um, you know, particularly thinking of considerations like, you know, like, I got a cracked tooth and did not have the money to fix it and it's now going to cost me, like four or five times the price to get it fixed, like, and, you know, and I can do that now, I can, but that's something that when, you know, I was, didn't have any money, that, that really, um, that creates anxiety, that creates, um, it's, it's not a context, it's not an environment in which to be producing work. And I, I um, there's some, a lot of really important and effective campaigning going on at the moment about um, a living wage for artists and a basic income for artists. But I do also think that if we had a universal basic income and we had a better structure of welfare that was not punitive. so incredibly um, punitive and bureaucratic and ineffective, put, placing people in, in, you know, work for the Dole programs where they're working for sometimes like a, a few dollars an hour, um, to pay back the debt that they owe to the government that they pay tax to, um, the government on stolen land that's illegitimate in the first place, and people are dying in work for the Dole programs. And what we, we, what we fundamentally need, yes, is 
a better structure for arts workers because I can guarantee you that like every arts worker does unpaid labour just constantly. It's, it's how the system is run. It, the, the entire structure of the arts industry in Australia is absolutely predicated on unpaid labour. And we're not talking necessarily about volunteers. We've got some amazing volunteers here at the Sydney Writers' Festival and their generosity is wonderful and astounding. But we're also talking about people, you know, in um, like people at every stage of every kind of organisation who are doing emotional mm. labour, intellectual labour, physical labour. Which goes far beyond the arts, of course. There's so much unpaid overtime in Australia. I mean, Absolutely. All right. I mean, the short answer is we need a revolution, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Which is just Start a short... Tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, just in the last few minutes before we start taking some questions... Uh, tell me about your novel. I'm very excited. I'm sorry. I'm a novelist. I'm prejudiced towards novels. Even though the yeah. Stella, in the end, only had two novels out of, I think, no, we had six. Yeah. We had six um, finalists mm -hmm. and we had two novels mm -hmm. and one of those was a graphic novel, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think Australia's got a really you know, fantastic fiction scene at the moment. And that's how I got into... Novels is how I got into writing and what um, kind of really inspired... In influences. Me Tell me about some but early influences. Well, not early, yeah. some moderate influences. Not me, other people. <laughs> um, I will never... My brain will never be the same after reading Alexis Wright. Um, she just did something absolutely astounding to me. Um, uh, and I'm so grateful for the work that she did. I'm also really interested in um, what's sort of broadly called post-colonial literature, even though that's probably problematic terminology. So um, some novelists that really inspired me, um, Michael Ondaatje, um, uh, Arundhati Roy, um, and of course I adore the work of Toni Morrison as well. So I, I'm really interested in writing that is um, uh, a bit conceptual and experimental about the way that we talk about trauma, particularly trauma that relates to colonialism and to race. And the novel that I'm working on at the moment, um, and it's, it's also got a research practice attached to it, I'm trying to, as much as possible, look at histories of 20th century sexism and racism in Australian literature. Um, but I'm, I'm writing about an Aboriginal woman who um, wants to you know, produce work, um, uh, produce a literary biography of a settler author who at the bicentenary celebrations of the, celebra the celebration of nation, a white Australian author who decided to expatriate and go back to England and say, this isn't my problem anymore. I cannot take on the burden and responsibility of colonialism. I am going to depart and return to the centre of empire and therefore, you know, avoid any further accountability. And there's a lot of Australian authors who have actually done that and I'm quite interested in what drove them to do that. So as is this, this character, you know, it's a young, young Aboriginal woman um, who wants to go and, and research the, the life and the decisions that led to this point and try to understand what she likes about, what, what, what she still likes about his work, regardless of that context. Um, and ends up literally getting haunted by the ghosts of um, of the the Australian <laughs> canon, and has a has this this sort of um, uh, terrible relationship with 
a white woman who positions herself as the sort of the gatekeeper of this. And fundamentally, like, I want it to be a novel about the impact of... Um, the impact of, of uh, evasive thinking in our literary culture and what legacies it leaves behind regardless of what it tries to escape, but also um, to just be a novel that has a space to talk about um, what we... It's hard to, I don't want to give away the ending. Um, how the things that we choose to entangle ourselves within um, right. can never so a actually literary be ghost story. Literary ghost story. Yeah. Literary ghost story. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's I didn't do it, weird. but I was going to have the ghost of Henry Lawson appear in Mullumbimby originally. <laughs> oh, damn, that could have been fun. I can see where that would have come in too. That could have been fun. I, yeah, I love <laughs> There's going to be more and more ghosts in my, my work as I go on as well. Maybe you can have dueling ghost novels. Would you like to read one more poem and then we'll throw the question? Yeah, okay, do we want something funny, sentimental, or kind of just like, actually, you know what? It's, I know what I'm going to read. It's an election tomorrow. Okay, this is Pyro, and I wrote it during the 2019 bushfires. Oh, get up and yell at them. It's meant to be yelled, actually. <laughs> Pyro. <laughs> no. Pyro. The solar panels that sunk us into debt have overheated, so this gasping air presses windows and drags bodies to the floor. Last week, we had to fell the iron bark that has held kookaburras in watch above us, lest their feathers catch light from the flaming leaves that fall from the air. Instagram promotes a sneak peek pre-collection of organic women's wear in which the thin white model leans dour against a fire truck in the thrice burnt char of a homeland. I stand prickle rashed, learning how brown my skin can bake and beg my dog, who at three months of living is yet to know rain, to stop straining at the lead and just piss on this hot, hard earth. I read it will take 10 years for flowering bees to again, for flowering trees to again sustain working bees, for the aloe casuarina to grow seed for the glossy black cockatoo. My mother cries quietly and yokes wet rags across her neck. My father collects dry branches when arranging the yard into gradations of that which we are most willing to lose. My sister girl's phone is too hot for her to hold it to her face when I call to ask how many mattresses her family needs. A girl in America posts links to purchase her upcoming cli-fi novel under headlines for the pyrocumulus. Scott Morrison sits sanguine in a wreath of frangipani. A video on Twitter plays the howls of a billion relations alight. Again, we are unheard as we speak knowings we have carried to care for this place through reckoning. Again, again, we are told to be grateful for this gift as if the machine has fireproofed anything but itself. I wrote this poem at a desk covered in ash. That's stunning, and what a stunning last line too. Okay, um, I think for questions we've got a mic here and a mic there. My um, 
question, if I can get it out, is about the sort of the tensions you've been talking about growing up with the cultural baggage, if you like, two cultural baggages <laughs> and spanning that. I wonder how you experience the tension of studying and doing your PhD, which to me is an archetypal white um, inhibiting structure, actually. It's not freeing, um, you're both going through this. I just wonder how you manage that tension and stay true to all you've talked about. Thank it. you. That's a good... It is a good question, and it, you are right. Like, PhDs, academia, the whole institution of the university in this country is a deeply colonial structure. And, um, you know, like a lot of institutions like to talk about, like, oh, we're decolonising our curriculum, we're diversifying our staff, we're tokenising our students, like whatever buzzword they want to have for it. But the reality was that um, I have never found information or verification that there's ever been another Aboriginal student graduate with an English degree, just an undergraduate degree at the University of Sydney. Um, and I would have students come through and do... Um, I was an ITAS tutor, so that's a program that's about supporting Aboriginal students in their undergraduate studies. And I hardly ever got students, because I, I was teaching in English, um, and, um, you know, I wasn't able to... I, I think I had two. And they both dropped out, and one be was because, in a in a tutorial, he tried to talk about how he felt uncomfortable using the name of a writer who had passed, and he didn't want to use that writer's name, um, and he wanted to find other ways of speaking to her work, and he was completely shot down and told, well, get over it, this is not what we do. And in another one, um, it was about the a student got upset because there'd been 11 weeks of really detailed discussions of novels and short stories and poems, and then Warwick Thornton, Sampson and Delilah was tacked on to the last week and nobody turned up to class to hear his presentation. And that structure was... That was my structure. That was my structure going through that institution and um, just constantly, you know, feeling so deeply uncomfortable when you'd have a text that was talking about, um, you know, violence against Aboriginal people, you know, like the frontier or about, you know, pastoral exploitation and stuff and, and then not even having like an acknowledgement of country or just anything to let the kid in the room who's watching this with the deepest tension being held in their body, like, it's okay, we don't endorse this. There was nothing about that and... You know, and that didn't go away in my postgraduate experience. I had a number of difficulties and challenges, some of which I'm not about allowed to speak about publicly for legal reasons. Um, uh, but what the fundamental sort of challenge that I found was really having to try to carve out, um, you know, this 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 new work about, you know, like theory and a theory-based approach, a really like critically informed but also culturally informed approach to Aboriginal, contemporary Aboriginal literature. And like when I started my PhD, they were like, oh, there's no research on any of that. You're going to have to come up with it yourself, which is a terrifying thing to tell a 21-year-old. By the way, there should be age restrictions on PhDs. I should not have been allowed in when I was 21. Um, don't tell 
someone that and then make them think, because it was wrong. And there was, it took me years to find all of the literature and all of the black writing about black writing that is now a part of my research. But like, there was no support for that. And so in many ways, Drop Bear feels like this, this document I have of what I did and what I had to go through and process to, you know, survive the institution in a way that my PhD, my thesis will never do. Like becoming a doctor is not, is not, you know, in any way a mark of the work that was required to find things that my institution had no interest in letting me find or no capacity even. Yeah, I'm currently enrolled in a PhD. I'm doing it for the scholarship. It has been useful in improving my novel, Fantastic. but um, yeah, look, I take my philosophy in life is often to take the path of least resistance. So when the uh, University of Canberra rang me up and said, "Do I want an honorary doctorate?" Recently, I said, "Yep." <laughs> so <laughs> if you can't go through it, go around it. <laughs> um, because it speaks to that question, I'm just going to read a, a couple of short paragraphs here from a. Uh, a prose piece in the book called The Ghost Gum Sequence because I think it, it really answers it beautifully. I've got to go to town now, but I'll be back tomorrow. There's woven reeds and feathers on the dash and I only clean out the dirt when I have to. It's about 20 bucks to go north and 10 bucks south, but it'll only cost you the petrol to cut through the cheap seats the browning outskirts and housing estates where all my elders live. I take Richmond Road slower in the dry when everything comes out for the green. I've seen South Creek swell this plain they're cutting up for lines of neat houses all along this way, but they'll never come for the scrub. They need this scrub to keep the ghosts in. They'll come for the poor long way streets first and close off every path to leave without paying. All these roads meet and end and begin at the open field that once always was, always will be, was the native institution where Governor Macquarie gathered up the precious children, black and brindle, to teach them God and civilization and to be without your family or your land or your name. It was here that Maria, daughter of Yellamundi, son of Gomburi, leader of the Buburongal, the place I go monthly to cut lantana and take my shoes off at the feet of ancestors, where she was taught white man's language and how to scream it back to him. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.